uh, I don't remember who said this. I want to say Steve Martin, but I could be wrong. But he said, uh, talking about music is like dancing about architecture. <laughs> Welcome to the Equispire Song Destruct Podcast, where we reverse engineer the most influential songs in history. This is a tightly formatted show where we dive into the mechanics of songwriting and production, deconstructing chord structure, song architecture, production design, and arrangements. We rate and review the effectiveness of these song elements and evaluate what we can learn from them so that we can become better songwriters and designers. Today's show is Footloose versus Uptown Funk. And the theme here is excess parodies. So again, there's all kinds of parodies. When people hear the word parody, they tend to go straight for, or I do, go straight for Weird Al Yankovic. That would be more of a funny parody. But there's all kinds of parodies, just like there's all kinds of anthems. Today we are doing excess parodies. And that's because both of these songs mimic or are, they're, they're both retro. Footloose is calling back to the 50s. Uptown Funk is calling back maybe to the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, they're both basically probably 20 years removed from what they're parodying, but they both do it incredibly well, which is why they make good specimens to examine under closer uh, scrutiny and figure out exactly what they're taking advantage of, what elements they're using to kind of figure out how they're able to achieve this parody. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Hey there. Nice to be here. So let me start us out with just a few of the stats. Footloose, released 1984, went to number one. It helped sell the Footloose soundtrack. Might be the number one best-selling soundtrack. Nine times platinum. I've decided to start fact-checking you in real time. <laughs> Go for it. What am I going to do but Google things? It is the eighth best-selling soundtrack of all time. My initial reaction was, I thought it would be Titanic. Titanic's on here. Number one is The, uh, the Bodyguard, uh, Saturday Night Fever, Purple Rain, Forrest Gump. That surprised me a little bit. Uh, Dirty Dancing. Titanic is six, Lion King, and then you got the login special, Footloose, and then nine is Top Gun. Numbers don't lie. There's a reason why they're stacked shoulder to shoulder like brother and sister in the greatest uh, greatest hits column. Mm-hmm. There's meaning here. It can't be a coincidence that both of those are side by side. Surprisingly, Kenny Loggins did not expect this to be a big hit, despite the fact that I think most people would claim it as being an obvious anthem or an obvious song of the decade. He did not expect it to be a big hit. He didn't put a lot of time and effort into it. The background story here is that the writer of Fame, the movie from the early 80s, who is the co-writer of the song, Dean Pitchford, Dean came to Kenny Loggins and said, you know what? I want to be a songwriter. Can you help me to sort of flesh out a song about this movie that I'm writing? It was based on a true story, but in any case, they kind of wrote a fictional account of it, which is what Footloose serves as kind of a a working man's dream of uh, embracing his more exotic creative side. That's the character of Kevin Bacon. But he came to Loggins with his backstory. Loggins basically said, yeah, I'm an expert songwriter. He'd been around for 12, 13, 14 years in the music business. One of his biggest songs that Kenny Loggins ever wrote is, even though we ain't got money, I'm so in love with you, honey. I love that song, but I think more people associate him with Footloose or, uh, I don't know, even Top Gun. Going back to how this song came about, 
I don't think it took them too much time, but they, they basically write the lyrics around what the guy was expecting the screenplay to kind of materialize to be. And Loggins never thought much of it. In fact, there's a little interview where he is talking about how when the movie debuted, the song was featured so prominently at the beginning of the movie with people kind of kicking their feet back and forth. He thought him and his wife kind of had a laugh about it because they they were almost kind of embarrassed that the song was featured so prominently. Right. All of this just to say when Loggins went to spend some of his own money on producing a video, he didn't put a lot of time and effort into it. There's one on there where he's just basically singing as a talking head into the the camera. And it's almost laughable. Even for 1984 standards, it's laughable how little effort <laughs> they put into it. Right. He always thought of this as a bit of a parody song and not really a creative accomplishment. Who's he parodying? Rockabilly. He's parodying uh, Rockabilly 50 stuff. Right. Yeah. This was one of the first songs that I can find that utilizes the synthesizer so prominently. Thriller, the single, was released a couple months before, but the album was released a year before. And I think Thriller was the first to utilize synthesizer so prominently. The sound that you think of being like Ghostbusters or Van Halen's Jump or the keyboards on Paradise City by Guns N' Roses. That 80s synthesizer sound. I thought about titling this show Middle-Aged Composer's Revenge. And the reason why is because both of these songs were written by guys in their second act of their career. So we discussed Kenny Loggins. This is 12, 13 years after his career started. Uptown Funk was written by Mark Ronson. Mark Ronson was a DJ, came over from UK to New York, worked more or less in the commercial side of the industry uh, on advertising and did various gigs as a as a DJ. He eventually got into releasing his own album, critically well received, but mostly he worked behind the scenes as a producer for like Amy Winehouse with a, they told me not to go to rehab. I said, so he's part of that. That's where he kind of got his early fame, which was late 2000s. But it's not until 2014 where he gets his only hit to date and probably it will be his last hit because this song mostly went viral. There's not a whole lot of explanation for why this struck such a nerve, but a lot of this came back to Bruno Mars kind of sucking, sucking up bandwidth that Michael Jackson relinquished on his death in uh, 2009. Clear this up for me because Mark Ronson's a producer. The song is because I always thought of this as a Bruno Mars song. But it's it's credited as Mark Ronson featuring Bruno Mars or what is, what is the deal there? Because what that's not normal for a producer. He doesn't sing. He doesn't. He's not a vocalist, is he? Ronson is not. But Ronson wrote the song flat out, and Ronson produced it. But yeah, normally it would just be a song he would pitch to somebody, and if he needed to produce it, he would. But it just seems like it should be on a Bruno Mars album. He did a TED talk. I ended up watching it. I did not know that much about him. But after watching the TED Talk, I realized that this guy's one of these kind of Quincy Jones. In fact, he models himself after Quincy Jones. And of course, Quincy Jones models himself after Barry Gordy of Motown. All three of these guys were sort of the same type of person. They kind of came from the business side, but also from the songwriting side. And they kind of structured the career in such a way where they could still maintain themselves as an artist almost, an artist behind an artist. Right. And that's where you find Ronson able to release this on his own album because he was an artist. But at the same time, everyone regards it as a Bruno Mars song. And of course, that's the reason why it went viral. Bruno Mars has 200 million singles, digital singles sold, which is a lot. That's I think it places him as seventh place. But what I learned from the TED Talk is that he's incredibly well educated in terms of his music background, his history 
little bit of an aficionado. And, and plus, he just has a natural ear for the Sonics, which is why he was hired as a producer. And it's ultimately what is working so well on Uptown Funk. He's an excellent producer at finding the appropriate mixes that crunch. One other thing I found kind of interesting about this single, in every country that it did chart, which was a lot of countries, it was a top 10, if not a number one hit, which surprisingly is not very common. Like a number one song in US might only be top 50 in the UK or might not even chart in any other country. So it's it's surprising, especially in a globalized world, and we've been globalized for a good 50 years. It's surprising to see such different tastes on these mega hits that they're not able to go universally viral. And I think, again, Bruno Mars is very much the second coming to Michael Jackson, who was another artist who was able to universally capture all attention from around the world and sell so many records. Let me start with uh, the architecture sequence. So if we are talking about Footloose, very common drum intro, then it brings in the guitar and the synthesizer kind of mimicking each other. Then it gets into the verse, pre-chorus, chorus. It repeats that hits a middle eight breakdown, hits back into the chorus, and then it has that clever little everybody cut, everybody cut, everybody cut, everybody cut, everybody, everybody cut footloose. <laughs> yeah, you got to tip off your hat. The fact that to the last second of that song, Kenny Loggins is well in his element and he understands that if this is going to be a radio hit and if it's going to grab people, it's got to start with a catchy guitar riff and it's got to end with a catchy call and response theme. Listening to this song as a little kid when I was four at the time, I would say that the part that I remembered most was just that ending. So don't dismiss how important it is as a lesson to take away here, how important the ending is. It's the primacy and recency effect that's spoken of in psychology. The first thing and the last thing you remember are the first thing you hear and the last thing you hear. This is the first song where I think we've had a chance to discuss how the ending can be so pivotal. So want to highlight that. The theme here is, hey, I'm just dying to get out of here, which was kind of popularized by Bruce Springsteen for like the eight years leading up to this. I think Bruce Springsteen pretty much made that his entire brand. The one major lesson I would state in terms of the lyric that you could take away, blue collar lyrics always appeal to masses and Uptown Funk is no different. Uptown Funk, the entire theme, it's calling to mind Uptown as a not downtown. So this is a a different class. We're talking about just like Uptown Girl. This is Uptown Funk. This is a play on a blue collar lifestyle trying to punch up to have a bigger lifestyle. Let's talk about the architecture of this song, Uptown Funk. So it starts out with the intro, which is like a doo-wop. Then it comes in with guitar, kind of twinkling in the background. And then it hits you with the four on the floor, acapella rap. And let's talk about this because this whole song, Mark Ronson says, wrote itself after they nailed the first line. This hit, that ice cold, Michelle Pfeiffer, that white gold, Mark Ronson says they stumbled upon that line. He says, from that point, the song was born. They knew what the song was supposed to be. The song was supposed to be kind of a steamroller song. For whatever reason, they knew it from that first line. I would state that the whole song is a bit derivative in terms of the elements it's using. Horn sections, it's trying to parody various rap lines that they're kind of reusing in the song. All of these things have been borrowed from songs that have been written countless times in the early 80s. That first line does have a bit of novelty to it. This hit, that ice cold. I'm not talking about the lyric. I'm talking about the way he's singing it. This hit, that ice cold, Michelle Pfeiffer, that white gold. It's a bit novel. Yeah, I'd say it's novel, but uh, 
It's interesting to me that there's something like 10 songwriters on this song. The reason why is because there's a couple of parts in the middle eight of this song where they say, uptown, funk you up, uptown, funk you up. Mm -hmm. There's a song that says, oops, upside your head, oops, upside your head from 1979. Okay. He definitely borrowed it, whether it was intentional or not. Not that it means much to the song, but it's definitely the exact same rhythm. Now, with rap, you almost have to reuse certain phrasings because there's only so many ways you can rap. So I'm not sure why they were able to win that, but all those other writers that were credited are just people who sued and said, hey, you're using parts of my horn arrangement or you're using parts of my uh, production quality sound. But the fact is, everything sounds like this out of the funk genre, starting with Earth, Wind and Fire. A really bad precedent was was set with the song Blurred Lines when they ruled in, in favor of, I guess, the Marvin Gaye estate. Or It wasn't a melody that was copied. It was a sound. It was a, a feeling. <laughs> you know what I mean? So now people right, are probably right. just jumping ship right You know, at the first sign of a lawsuit. They're probably like, okay, throw those guys, five guys on the song. You know, we probably hear about 1% of the, the legal cases, whether they win or lose. I'm sure that there's millions of cases out there just lawyers control all day long because the second they throw that lawsuit there's an roi a return on investment do we fight this and spend a hundred thousand or just pay this guy off ten thousand and watch him walk away uptown funk i think could be one of the more prominent cases of everybody coming after him to sue him for a song that kind of sounds like a lot of different material but it is just a parody and heck i'd say that every rap song or every funk song is a parody of its genre. It seems like also with the lyric content of Uptown Funk, there's almost a uh, Bee Gees era disco strut to it at the same time that there's almost like some of that swing music in there with the horns and everything. Let's talk about what that means, actually. Those horns are, as far as I can tell, an earth, wind, and fire. They started in the early 70s. You know, even Chicago had the horn section in the late sixties. So I don't think it was a revelation that horns could be used in such a way that created a bit of a funk tone, but it wasn't until best I can tell when the Jackson five used it. And, and also with Michael Jackson's first couple of singles, which were Quincy Jones. I don't think that it's anything in particular that anyone can lay claim to other than maybe earth, wind and fire kind of made it their thing. All uptown funk did was sample a feeling that those horns provide. They did not sample any specific notes. Having said that, Mark Ronson has been sued into oblivion. And I think he just gave everybody a little piece of the pie to make them all go away. And they also got their name on it, which is a whole nother deal. I mean, it's one thing to sue and get money, but it's another thing to sue and want naming rights. Now, why do you think they want naming rights? Ego. That's it. That's all it is. Pride. Heck, he might have said, look, I'll give you a dollar, but I'll give you a naming credit. Mark Ronson is actually someone worth studying because I do think that he gets it. And the guy's uh, just a very clever type of uh, personality who will probably go on to have a lasting stay in the industry, not as necessarily a producer, but just as a uh, representer of music. The guy's got a good head on his shoulders. So one lesson I want to take away from Uptown Funk in terms of the, uh, the lyrics is that you don't have to be Shakespeare. If you read these lyrics... It's nothing more than name dropping, brand referencing, some male bravado, various jokes, 
but there's really nothing here to sink your teeth into. For the for that matter, Footloose, there's not too much to sink your, your teeth into on the lyric side, though it is effective on the Footloose. He gets away with telling a pretty big story without having to actually put too many lyrics down. Working so hard, been punching my card eight hours for what? Tell me what I got. I mean, that pretty much sums up the entire movie of Footloose, and he accomplished it in one verse. There's a great line in uh, Uptown Funk, make a dragon want to retire. Oh, sure. Well, my favorite line is fill my cup, put some liquor in it. (laughs) The first time I heard the song, I liked it. Mm -hmm. And it was before I think it was a universally accepted hit. I just barely overheard it somehow or another. That song, fill my cup, put some liquor in it. That is the song that's going places because that's extremely memorable. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to Footloose. We kind of talked about some of the architecture and some of the lyrics and the mood that they're trying to set here. Both are party songs, essentially. If we go into the chord structure, there's not too much to talk about here. Footloose is A, kind of flips the D real quick and back to A, kind of a blues structure. One thing that he is able to accomplish is in the pre-chorus, he is able to hit midtones, Yeah. such as instead of from A to D to E... He's able to throw in a D sharp. Yeah. It's actually a D sharp diminished. And he starts ascending. Yeah, it starts ascending F sharp, G, G diminished, G sharp before hitting back to the chorus in the uh, middle eight section where he kind of does a day in the life crescendo swell where it's I'm turning it loose. That's kind of a crescendo. And by the way, Uptown Funk also has a crescendo. Uh, Cause Uptown Funk don't give it to you. Saturday night we in the spot. Don't believe me, just watch. That's a that's a day in the life crescendo. So they're both paying homage, whether or not they realize it. And Mark Ronson probably does realize it, and Loggins probably realizes it. They're calling back to 1967, Sergeant Pepper. Hmm. Everybody will go back to that record because so much was done on that record that maybe the Beatles were you know sampling from other artists, but still, that's a monument. They took everything that came before. And they made a permanent record of what they had heard. That's sort of what all Loggins is doing. He's taking everything you heard before, making a permanent record, putting a stamp on it saying, yeah, this song's been done a million times, but I'm going to do it the definitive version right here of rockabilly slash rock slash pop slash dance, whatever. Um, Same thing with Uptown Funk. Lesson to take away from Footloose. Loggins, he's got the music theory that he can flex on his audience. And he does it. He does it not just with the crescendos and with the mid-tones stepping up, but he also does it on that breakdown where it's the ah, 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 where they have the swell going on. They're plucking a few uh, notes in there that are pretty cool. The root, the third, the fifth. Then he hits a minor. So it's all building up on an E major, but he ends up hitting the dark tone right towards the end of the swell. He hits the minor third and then he hits a ninth. And this is something we always like to talk about. He hits the high C. What do they call it? C6, where he says, I'm turning it loose. That's the highest note of the song. Okay. That's somebody acknowledging that they understand music theory. He knows he's going up for the high point of the song, and he's got to hit that high C to sort of wink at everybody and say, I know I'm doing an excess parody here. Going to the other side of the fence, Uptown Funk. He's doing an intro a verse, a pre-chorus, and a second pre-chorus. So that's of note here. Uptown Funk has this hit, that ice cold, Michelle Pfeiffer, that white gold. That's the verse. Pre-chorus is, I'm too hot. Call the police and a fireman, I'm too hot. And then the second pre-chorus is, girls hit your hallelujah. Girls hit your hallelujah. And then it goes into the chorus. Don't believe me, just watch. So it's got four separate parts. 
And I think it, I think Mark Ronson says it took him two months to write this song. It has to have something to do with one of these components. Maybe that second pre-chorus, girls hit your hallelujah, girls hit your hallelujah, because uptown funk don't give it to you. That might have been, just as a songwriter, and I'm trying to deconstruct this, I'm going, that part might have eluded him until the end. And once he stumbled on that, he knew he could make this song work. And then he, then it was a matter of putting in a ton of time and effort to get the mix just right and make it crunch. You know what really works for me, too, is the uh, the bass line mimicked by a vocal bass. Boom, 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 boom. That is pretty catchy. I say that that's pretty central to the song. Yeah. Now... Out of all the people who sued Mark Ronson for Uptown Funk, Madonna was not one of them. And she had the most sampled mm. song. Which song do you think I'm going to say? I don't even know. Material Girl or something? I don't, I've never thought about it. <laughs> Vogue. Out of, uh, I think it was 1990, 1991. Yeah. Uh, it's the same, same chords. It's D minor to G. And wow. if you listen to Vogue, you will hear Uptown Funk. It's kind of downcast, whereas Uptown Funk is upbeat. Same chords, same feeling. And I'm not someone to say, hey, it's got the same chords, it's the same song. Right. It's not just that. It's it's a lot of different moods and a lot of elements that are being used in Vogue. And he sampled them in Uptown Funk, but you won't see Madonna's name on the record yet until somebody hears this and realizes that they can sue him and then uh, they'll go after him. <laughs> One other element that they use uh, in the chorus or the pre-chorus, they use the old girls hit your hallelujah. Woo! They use that little octave, that little falsetto trick. When in doubt, yeah. If you if you're struggling as a songwriter to make something sound catchy, jump an octave. Jump an octave <laughs> and use a falsetto. Okay, going on to the production of uh, Footloose, we got pretty prevalent bass guitar on the production. It's pretty much only bass on the verse. They they tear the guitar out during the verse so that when you get into the pre-chorus, that's when they bring the guitar in with some whole notes, just big strums across. I'm trying to tell you life is passing you by. You get a little bit of guitar fills on the second pre-chorus as they're trying to layer and kind of progress the song. On the chorus, you got a lot of boogie-woogie bass guitar again, featured very prominently. You have explosive synthesizer sounds on the second backbeat or the fourth quarter note. Let's talk about the synthesizer for a second. What I find interesting is that even though people tend to think of the 80s as having a ton of synthesizers, it really was just a period that started right about here. It actually started with Thriller in 1983-ish, and it probably goes into about 1986-ish. And then that's when the synthesizer starts to fall out of favor. So as, as much as people think of it as a decade sound, it was really just a three-year sound before the synthesizer started to get pulled out mm. and became passe. Ultimately, I would say that the production is what sells both of these songs as excess parodies. The way that the vocals are delivered are exaggerated emotionalism on both sides of the fence. They both kind of perform this, the vocal the same way. Talking about Uptown Funk and specifically about the production value, it's a lot of James Brown influence. Jackson 5, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Shake Your Body Down to the Ground. That's the song I was trying to think of. Shake Your Body Down to the Ground has a lot of horns in it. It's from 1979. And that's what I think most sounds like Uptown Funk's horn section. Uh, although Earth, Wind & Fire, uh, they have the song September. Do you remember? Yep. Da, 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 da. Well, both Earth, Wind & Fire and the Jackson 5 on Shake Your Body Down to the Ground, they both utilized a horn arranger named Tom Washington. Right? He, he goes by the moniker Tom Tom or Tom Tom 84 or something. 
I couldn't find any research on him other than the fact that he was the arranger of both of these songs. And I also found some orphan thread from some, uh, I think, a Pro Tools or a Digi Design website where somebody was bringing it up saying, who is this guy? How come I can't find anything on him? Whoever that guy is, Tom Washington, he might be solely responsible for the sound that everyone thinks of as timeless when they hear Uptown Funk. But who knows where any information exists on this guy. Okay, other notable things I just want to bring up on Footloose, it's Rockabilly. Rockabilly is the roots of rock and roll. It's in the very name, Rockabilly, rock and roll. But Rockabilly is meant to, it's almost like an upbeat form of blues music. It's simple and Footloose basically resurrected it 20 years later and made a big hit of it. It's the exact same story on the Uptown Funk side. He took an emerging genre, which was dance funk, in the uh, late 70s. And I'd say it kind of phased its way out by middle of the 80s, kind of the funk genre before giving way to hip hop and rap. And he brought it back. And I think Mark Ronson is on record as saying, the reason why I worked so hard on this song was I realized that when we were bringing it to the marketplace, we had to have it be perfect because it wasn't going to sound like a lot of the stuff on the radio. So we had to make sure that it was perfectly accessible, but it wasn't necessarily guaranteed to be a smash success without the really hard work and effort in the mix and the production of this song, as well as some of the, the components of the song. Influences. Besides everything else I've mentioned, I just want to say that Footloose, the movie, was influenced by Eddie and the Cruisers, which came out in 1983. And that was sort of the precursor that set up all these other movies that we've been discussing the past few weeks from Breakfast Club to Bat Dance to any of those 80 soundtrack albums. I think they all got started with Eddie and the Cruisers. Feel free to fact check me on that. But uh, Eddie and the Cruisers came out in 1983. The movie was actually a bit of a flop, but then the soundtrack took off and then people started wanting to see the movie because they liked the soundtrack. Footloose followed shortly afterwards, six months later. So at this point, Kenny Loggins got involved and realized, hey, 50s music is coming back. There was an American graffiti in 1971, like the Happy Days uh, resurgence of 50s music. But I think Bruce Springsteen really kind of started to bring it back in the middle of the 70s and the late 70s. Not bringing back 50s so much as Americana. And then it kind of made a full resurgence in the 1983, 1984 range. Soundtrack fever, La Bamba. Richie, the Richie Valens story. So again, I just want to highlight the fact that Footloose is bigger than just a song. It was almost a cultural movement that it was able to lead. Music has that special effect on people where it can lead. I don't think a movie can lead, but a movie paired with a soundtrack can lead a cultural movement. And we grew up in it. And I think it was pretty strong influences on us. Let's talk about what's going to be on next week's episode. And it's going to be... One by U2, 1991, Bono, versus The One, Elton John, 1992. So I'm not going to reveal what the theme here is, and it's not going to be one versus another song with the title one. But U2, uh, this will actually be an interesting episode because Elton John actually is an influencer of U2. For the purpose of this episode, I will be saying that Elton John was actually influenced by U2 even though he doesn't write his own lyrics, we all know Bernie Toppin does, still had to have influenced him to write a song about one following U2's smash hit one. And I was going to throw in Metallica's one, but I thought, you know what, we're not, we're not going to go there. <laughs> then it's uh, making a farce 
of the one concept, which is really not the theme. What do these two songs mean to you, Ryan? <laughs> well, I will tell you next week for sure. So uh, that'll do it for us here. And as always, this podcast is in support of a project I hope to release in 2020, a social network for aspiring songwriters to share and collaborate with other songwriters, their gamification of the constructive feedback process. We thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next show.